Welcome to the Academy Podcast, where our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and some cool stories. My name is Mark Guadagnoli, and I'm a professor of neuroscience and neurology at the Kirk Corian School of Medicine at UNLV. Today, our podcast guest is Dr. Allison Netsky. She's a psychiatrist, chair of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Department, and the Vice Dean for Clinical Services at the Kierkegaardian School of Medicine. Dr. Netsky cares deeply about psychiatric patients and the need for proper care. She also talks about this and growing up in small town Nevada, psychedelics, and what's next for mental health in the state of Nevada. Dr. Netsky, thank you very much for being here for the podcast. Um, we're going to talk about your your journey that you've had into your current position. So we'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about mental health and leadership. Uh, and and one of the things that's interesting to me about leadership specifically for you is because you just went recently through the ELAM program. So I'd like to talk about that too. We're going to start in Fernley, Nevada. Um, you grew up there. Uh, one of the things that was interesting, so first if you could tell folks where Fernley is and then I'm interested in how your family got there in the first place. Well, thanks, Mark. I am a native to Nevada, and my family has been in Nevada for many generations prior to that. Um, I was only in Fernley for the first three years, and then my family moved uh, to Reno. For those of you who don't know, Fernley is about 40 miles east of Reno. And uh, so when I was growing up, it really was just the stopping ground between Reno and Fallon, which is about 60 miles east <laughs> of Reno. The two uh, metropolitans. You know, yeah. metropolitan area yeah. of, of one of, uh, I guess, the less rural part of Nevada now that it's Reno is growing so much. Uh, so, um, so growing up there, uh, I don't remember much about Fernley, but I had uh, grandparents and <clears throat> Um, other family members that lived there for a, a very long time, and um, uh, and so that's uh, you know so those are my memories of, of Fernley. Uh, my family was spent a lot uh, spent a lot of time in Fallon. Um, prior to that, they were in more rural areas of you know of Nevada and uh, came over really as pioneers. Uh, spent a lot of time doing mining and. You know other other kinds of things, and then after uh, after growing up in Reno, I went to UNR for undergrad, which was just an uh, outstanding opportunity, and then stayed on there for medical school. I'm actually really interested in why multiple generations back people moved to Nevada, right? So you said pioneers, uh-huh. and did they come here? Um, First of all, where did they come from and why did they come out here? Was it for mining or did they just happen to do that when they came out? Uh, you know, it was the great migration west looking for, you know, opportunity, looking for, you know, land for farming. And um, and then during the time of the, you know, of the great Comstock load, when there was a lot of opportunities for mining in, you know, areas around Tonopah and other other places how many generations back gosh my uh you know my great grandma was grew up in lund which is outside of ely nevada uh 
which is in the eastern northeastern part of Nevada. Yeah. And uh, was she born there? Was she born in Utah? Boy, I, I would have to pull out the the papers to to say. But so it's been, you know, at least since the 1800s. Yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah. I mean, we're such a new state, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. So somebody that far back is that's early, early on. Um, okay, so you uh, you you grew up in Fernley, but you moved to Reno. Mm-hmm. Uh, your family uh, chose to move there for work or for what reason? Um, just work opportunity. Yeah, moving to the big city. Is your is your family in academia as well? No. Mm-mm. Okay, no. so you were kind of a trailblazer there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, my my grandmother was actually a uh, nurse graduate graduate from UNLV uh, many 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 years ago when UMC was called Southern Nevada Memorial, and then um, and so she she graduated from the UNLV nursing program, uh, but she would be the only person in healthcare. It's, you know, so obviously we've known mm-hmm. each other for years. It's really interesting to me. We've never talked about this, and I, I knew that you were from Nevada, but I didn't realize how deep the roots were, which is really cool that, that you've been, you and your family have been here for generations, literally for generations. That's really neat. So the nurse piece is interesting because we're going to talk in just a minute about how you got into uh, the area of psychiatry, and it was mm-hmm. a nurse that was inspirational here, right? Well, getting to the path of psychiatry, um, you know, any some some people when they start medical school, they think this is what I'm doing. I was not one of those mm-hmm. one of those people. I had done a lot of work um, volunteering with geriatrics and um, all sorts of other kinds of things. When I was an an undergraduate, um, I worked in a uh, methadone treatment center. I w- worked as a volunteer in an emergency room. I was a pharmacy technician uh, prior to going to med school. You know, on all sorts of things. Yeah. No, no idea what I what I wanted to do. Maybe I was thinking neurology or something like that. Can I ask real quick? Mm-hmm. When did you know you wanted to go to med school? Oh, I I just knew. I knew Always. from day one. Yeah, yeah, day one of college. Yeah, like this 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 is where I'm headed. Biology then, major, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, magna cum laude. Congratulations. Um, okay, sorry. This, uh, you knew from the very beginning there was mm-hmm. just something about it. This is what you want to do. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And you're all over the. the That's why I had a lot field. of experiences. Yeah. I worked yeah. uh, in a paternity lab. I worked um, uh, processing as a technician, uh, processing uh, rodent blood samples. I I mean I did. Wow. I had I, it was it was a great time undergrad it was a great <laughs> time I had all these different experiences and then as you go through medical school you start eliminating things off your list that you think are perhaps not um, not a good choice for you based on you know just your affinity to the specialty and then you have some moments where you really think this this is it for me. Uh, and for me, it was really when I when I was doing surgery, and mm-hmm. and then the rest of rest of that year. But um, it just so happens when I was doing my clerkship in in surgery, we had a lot of very medically ill patients who had some serious mental illness, schizophrenia, and the, the they were highly symptomatic. And I just realized that was my comfort zone, right? Uh, being able to uh, 
develop good methods of communication, being able to see the person behind the illness, and really understanding what the health disparities are that can develop if you are are have unconscious biases towards people with mental illness, you are failed to be able to communicate because of them being, you know, very symptomatic and um, it, it's not unusual for the, the average person in healthcare, whether it's, uh, you know, surgeon, primary care, you know, general med surge nursing to, you know, have some reluctance to work with people who are very paranoid or mm-hmm. are hallucinating or, you know, maybe have some aberrant, um, aberrant behavior. And so I realized that at that point, and then throughout the whole rest of the year, you see the psychiatric conditions in everything else, right? Whether you're doing internal medicine or other kinds of things, you see the underlying uh, impact that illness can have on patients. It's, it's interesting the way you're describing, because I hadn't thought about it, but the, it's, it becomes a potential thread through any of the specialties. Mm-hmm. And, and in particular, I think some, some of the trauma-related specialties as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, and what was it? Do you remember what it was exactly? Like, was it that you felt like you could reach the people? That What was it that really attracted you in this direction? So I, I would say the moment where I said, this is it, like, this is it. And at that time, psychiatry, I mean, it is a very popular specialty now, right? The match is very competitive. Medical students are really wanting to go. But, you know, at that point, psychiatry was not the specialty uh, that uh, was thought of as very competitive and held in, in high regard. It, mm-hmm. it just was, you would sometimes have comments where people would say, well, I guess we need smart people in, in psychiatry too. Yeah. So I'm glad you're going into this. But it was sometimes to some of your mentors, it was a bit of a, of a letdown. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say the most memorable moment was a, a patient that I was working with in the hospital who had had you know schizophrenia for quite a few years, was very medically ill but she had a picture of her where she had graduated with her doctorate in computer science. Oh, wow. And so she would say, this is who I am, right? I, I, I need someone to help me get back to, like, this is, who, this is what I'm capable of. And so you thought, wow, this, these, these people are saying these people, these people are us. I mean, mm-hmm. we all have vulnerabilities. We all have periods of time where we may have some uh, some really serious needs, and you know, being able to embrace that instead of you know feeling like society is turning your back on you know on you at that point is um, is really important. It's very important now. I mean, mental health is you know now in the spotlight where it's kind of been in the shadows for a long time. Yeah, it's. Like that story is touching to me. Like I can see how that would shift your way of thinking because, and, and you know, I'll, naively I'm thinking, well, you know, you've got this picture and the fact that that person recognizes that that's who they are and that's who they can be, but something has taken them away from that um, is really remarkable, right? Because a lot of times I think we just think about people who have schizophrenia or or some mental illness that they're not, they don't have a foot in the, in reality. 
enough to be able to make those types of comparisons. I just heard a, a podcast actually last night where um, the speaker was talking about uh, schizophrenia and talked about it as being on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what you're, what you're talking about is somebody who is sort of on that p- part of the spectrum where they're able to recognize their their self in their in you know sort of their best way um and i had never heard of it like that before so that's really fascinating you could look at schizophrenia the same way that you can look at diabetes the same way that you can look at uh you know any number of conditions from you know diverticulosis whether if you recognize it and you have a good management plan Mm -hmm. then there's a you have a good chance of the illness not controlling your life you can control with maintenance you can control a lot of symptoms of the illness not a hundred percent doesn't mean that you don't have it doesn't mean that it couldn't still cause disruption and disability and that you don't still need supports but it there with with the right tools in place the outcome can be very different so this actually uh, extends to one of the topics that we're going to talk about, and that is the future of, uh, of mental health from a couple of different perspectives. You know, one is what trends do you see that are happening in mental health and, and or mental illness? And then the other side of it is what are the things that we're going to be doing a few years down the road that we're not doing now, or at least not in mass that we're doing now? What are your thoughts about that? Well, it's an exciting time, and it's also a little bit of a scary time in uh, the world of, of mental health. The, the last few years, partly related to the kind of outcry f- because of COVID, but even a little bit before that, the recognition of mental illness as an important topic um, has really made its way up to the forefront of public health uh, you know, topics. Mm-hmm. The stigma related to mental illness for our generation compared to the younger generation is like apples and oranges right now, where in my earlier career working with, uh, with professionals, the stigma, What's going to happen to me? Do I need to declare this on a job application? What's my family going to think? Uh, you know, people don't want me to take medicine or psychotherapy is for, you know, for people who are weak. You know, all, all sorts mm-hmm. of, of ideas because people were afraid. So they made up stories about, you know, people with mental illness being different. But now all of the, the campaigns and the ease of being able to talk about how you're doing with your mental health in our, you know, our current generation from, you know, from, from teens up through, you know, mid thirties is very, is very different. So that is exciting. If you think back to what the stigma was associated with some, uh, some very common conditions like cancer, Mm -hmm. like breast cancer, right? In the seventies and early eighties, people didn't talk about breast cancer. And there wasn't a lot of great, great treatments. And the treatments that were available had some stigma, some post-surgical stigma associated with it. And so it was, it was kind of hush-hush. So people were very, you know, were really marginalized as far as being able to get support. And through 
big public health campaigns, understanding more, we've really been able to make tremendous inroads to the survivability of of cancer. Mm -hmm. So this is where we are now with mental health. The amount of funding that is going into different kinds of treatment, not it's obviously not where I think it should be. There's still a lot of barriers to uh, to mental health treatment, but far superior to where it once was. But also the amount of, of attention that's now getting paid to research on different kinds of, of diagnoses, um, treatment modalities, um, the impact of childhood trauma, all of those different kinds of things are are going full speed. So the what is the face of psychiatry treatment going to look like in mental health treatment in 10 years and 20 years it will I would estimate it will be very different than what it is right now hopefully for certain kinds of conditions like depression there will be some more easily accessible rapid treatments mm-hmm. compared to what we have today so so a couple things follow up on that one of them you know you had talked early about how uh, when you were in med school, psychiatry wasn't uh, as competitive as it is now um, as far as the number of people who want to get into the field. What's the lag? So a couple of questions about that. One, why do you think it's changed? What's the lag between when it started to become more and more competitive? And, and to be clear, obviously, you're a great example. I'm not saying there weren't great people in it, mm-hmm. just, you know, that wasn't the specialty that a lot of people were going to. And so you've got this a little bit of a lag where all of a sudden it started increasing people into those specialty programs. And then uh, slightly following that was people being more uh, open and about discussing mental illness and, and mental health. What was the lag between those two? Like, what do you think drove that? Some of it was you know, like you said, it was the public service announcements. But there, you know, almost always, breast cancer is a really good example of this. It's usually somebody, a celebrity, these kinds of things that put a face to it that all of a sudden start driving some of that, the awareness as well. Right? I think there are, there likely are, are many factors. One is that careers in psychiatry are, um, are, are, are outside of just the state hospital or private practice, Mm -hmm. right? There are a lot of opportunities for people in psychiatry to have a variable, you know, kind of practice where you don't just have to do one thing all the time. Uh, So that is is really appealing for, for folks. The equity and pay for psychiatry careers has greatly improved over, um, over the last, I would say, probably 10-ish years. Uh, and so that makes, uh, you know, med, med students look at uh, all of these different metrics. Uh, but the other part is looking, I would say the other two factors, one is work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, psychiatrists uh, have more ability to have some control over their the number of hours a week that they, they choose to work because there are less, um, uh, less responsibilities for you know, on-call surgeries. You know, uh, the you know some of the um, the necessities of a trauma surgeon 
or an ICU doc or, you know, some of those uh, things that are inherent to those specialties. Uh, but the other part is if you think about what all med students say on their med school interview, it's that I want to be able to get to know people, I want to take care of patients, I want to mm-hmm. take care of uh, families, and I want to be able to deliver mm-hmm. some whole person care. And psychiatry allows you uh, to have the opportunity to really get to know your patients for a long period of, of time and help them r- really develop a plan for good insight, maintenance of you know of their condition and you get to see them achieve a lot of successes in their life it's you know it's interesting how some of the metrics of students change through med school so like you said you know they all come in wanting to help people Mm -hmm. and then one of the things that we know for example is that empathy scores decrease through med school which probably there's a practicality to that to some extent Um, you need to be able to to be enough have enough distance so Mm -hmm. that you can make uh, you know, objective decisions. But I wonder if it, in some cases, maybe goes too far that there's a lack of empathy. But um, it's interesting. I think back to the story of you with the, the lady with the picture. And that was, I mean, I, I've seen you as a both an objective person, but an empathetic person as well. But in that case, that was sort of like a spark of empathy. It was as you told me the story. I'm like, oh, wow, now I, I feel a different level of kinship with her than a schizophrenic in a hospital, right? And so I wonder if they had, if if med students had experiences like you did where you connect with that person, if that would be something just like it did for you that would shape their, not only their view of who they're going to work with and how they're going to work with them, but just overall empathy as well. You know, a friend of mine told me one time, She's a physical therapist, and she said every patient that she works with, she thinks of, about them as a potential family member, and mm-hmm. she treats them from that perspective. So, The good news is med students are not all the same. Yeah. And somebody's desire to say, I want to be that doctor that saves that patient in the first hour after a trauma, or I want to see that be that that person that really helps people with their their mobility because you know we know how bad it is after an elderly person breaks their hip but i am committed to you know helping that person get their quality of life Mm -hmm. or you know being able to you know say i want to stamp out heart disease right and i felt so committed to giving people a longer life and so we you know based on based on you know your patchwork of what makes a, you know, person to person, they're all going to have, you know, have that little inlet to what, you know, keeps your fire lit to keep you going because, you know, medicine is not an easy, a, an easy career path. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of, um, a lot of things that make it, um, the, the challenging parts sometimes aren't seeing the patients. It's, you know, more of the practice of medicine, the business yeah. of medicine that can, uh, make things a little more challenging so my mom uh uh, we've talked about this there are eight kids in my family and my mom told me one time uh when you were young 
when you all were young, I tried to teach you all this, uh, treat you all the same so nobody felt like they were being treated different. And then you grew up, and I have to treat you like people. And uh, you just reminded me when you're talking, you know, people are different, and, mm-hmm. and they respond differently even to the same situation. So, yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's cool when people, like in your case, um, so obviously match to the places where they can make their contribution. And, and that's really my hope for a lot of people, right, in medicine and not, mm-hmm. that we're in a place where we feel like yep. we can make a contribution. Yep. So, so one of the things, you know, you talked about some of the, the future of medicine uh, areas. In a lot of areas of medicine, um, it's, it's being automated in, for example, robotic surgery and, and then the genetics, using genetics for cancer uh, treatments and so forth and so on. So it's really almost the, the technology that's moving that field forward. Do you see any of that in psychiatry? Oh, for, for sure. I mean, there are a lot of projects that are happening trying to better uh, really be able to better match you know, neuropeptide changes, brain changes, mood changes, EEG changes, like wh- where, how, how can we do a better job, you know, predicting, preventing, monitoring, um, other than the, the, what the patient tells mm-hmm. us. So a lot of neuroscience research uh, on, the, on the brain happening right now. In addition to that, there is a uh, quite a movement using artificial intelligence, meaning using apps to try to uh, be able to help patients monitor their behavior and is that predictive of how they're doing. So so that's a, that's a t- tough area because you're thinking, well, do I want people to know? Do I not want mm-hmm. them to know? But the, the areas that the companies that are looking at, you know, these kinds of um, these kinds of things will uh, be able to get baseline information on you, and then based on how many times a day you text, or you know what what is your geographic area, or uh, other kinds of things, they can make some smart inferences of how are you doing today? You haven't really gone out much. How is your mood? And you know to be able to do some inter-appointment monitoring. Mm-hmm. I don't have. Uh, first-hand knowledge of any of that in action, but we've talked to a lot of app developers and a lot of conversation about how how can we do a better job giving people access to um, how they're doing and some tools because the the access to treatment is um, is is really is really lacking in a lot of areas right now. We really are mm-hmm. at a at a tough point with mental health uh, shortage for all various kinds of clinicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, and everyone um, on both ends of that. And it, it, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So the, the app conversation, mm-hmm. you know, it's some people would su- suggest that there are certain social platforms, social media platforms that are ac- actually hurting mm-hmm. the mental health of the of the world yep. to some point, right? And now there's an app where you're using essentially AI and big data to be able to to determine, right? And you know, it's not the tool necessarily that's bad; it's the abuse of the tool that becomes right. the issue. 
Right. So who knows what will happen with that? Yeah. As we know, social media. Um, I mean, we're we're just so tied in with 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 data and um, our our computers and smart devices. You know, what is going to happen with our uh, with our personal identities and all the data? That's a that's a question for someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's but I I do like the idea and what you're saying is that both you know the the conversation about mental health is a more open conversation and and when it's you know out there then mm-hmm. we can address it more as well so you know considering this considering the technology aspect of uh, future mental health work and what the other trends that you've talked about how do you think that changes how we train individuals to be mental health professionals well at, at a core, people have to understand the illness, and they have to be able to understand the impact on people, and they have to understand, you know, the various, you know, kinds of, of treatment modalities. What I would expect that we'll continue to see in the future are more opportunities for specialization. Um, if somebody is going to be, um, so just like in psychiatry or psychology now, right, people, some people do um, specialized testing. Some people work um, with forensics and, you know, specialized court system that is kind of outside of what I would do, you know, working with, you know, working with uh, patients. And, you know, some people work with just kids and some people, you know, do, you know, different kinds of specialized psychotherapy. And I would estimate that that would, you know, fall, you know, along, along those lines. And then maybe someday there will be a, a whole, you know, kind of technology of mental health, you know, arm to all training programs. So, okay, I have one more question for you about this, and, and um, I'll put it out there if you aren't comfortable talking about it one way or the other. Although I've, I'm, I'm preambling this question because it reminds me a little bit, paralleling what you talked about, how there's been an evolution of people being more open to talking about mental health. One of the things that has been uh, in in mass media lately is about uh, like for example the book How to Change Your Mind um, and u- utilizing psychedelics for uh, treatment and psychiatry. Do you have any thoughts about this and how that might impact some of the treatments going forward? Well the good news is there is a lot of research being done on how to safely and effectively use a lot of the substances that are out there, um, you know, certain kinds of psychedelics like psilocybin and also cannabis, mm-hmm. right? We, 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 we have these, these, you know, substances that are out there that are, that are being used and because of, you know, kind of the, the war on drugs and the, you know, the, the kind of prohibition of being able to think about these as medicinals has been in place for so long we 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 don't know kind of what we don't know so the the good news is there's a lot of research being done on um uh you know psychotherapy that is assisted you know by hallucinogens for people with ptsd Mm -hmm. and um so this will this will be a, a a really important area we have some conditions that are very hard to treat trauma related you know, complicated illness, complicated PTSD. There, th- these are very complex conditions, 
there's not just one pill or just one therapy that works for everyone. And we need to continue to push the envelope to be innovative so that we can help people come back to their trajectory where they're feeling you know, comfortable and in control of their life again. I keep coming back to the, the story that you told and, and help people come back to that picture mm-hmm. that they see of themselves. It's, it's interesting to me because you know, it goes back to what we were talking before. It's not the tool that's the problem. It's the abuse of the tool that becomes the problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, social media is this way, um, right. you know, potentially using uh, psychedelics is this way and so forth and so on. You could go down the list. There's a sweet spot probably for a lot of things. and But if you abuse that sweet spot, it becomes problematic. So, okay, so let's switch gears a little bit, although uh, I think we n- maybe need to do another podcast just to follow up this this uh, topic of mental health leadership. So you've been a leader in your field for a long time. You've been a department chair uh, at UNR School of Medicine at UNLV's Kirk Corian School of Medicine. Um, you've me- recently moved into an additional, I'm not going to say a new, but an additional position. So if you can talk a little bit about that, tell folks what that is. And then in general, what your style of leadership is, where did that come from? And then what's unique in your situation being a female in leadership positions? And this gets us back a little bit to the ELAM uh, topic that we talked about in the beginning. So, Oh, that was a mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) I realized as I was getting all the way to ELAM, I'm like, wow, I should have listed those questions. But Um, so I don't I don't think people, you know, kind of start their journey saying I am going to end up here. I'm going to end up as a chair or as Mm -hmm. a dean or they follow, you know, kind of what their, um, you know, what their what their likes are. My in moving back to Nevada, you know, my uh, I would say whether it's my passion or my Achilles heel is education. Right. I really love working with medical students. I'm passionate about trying to improve the healthcare landscape in in Nevada. Uh, when I moved here in 2007, there were more psychiatrists in the hospital I came from in Maryland than we had in our whole state. Wow. Right. It was it was a shock. It was, uh, you know, I thought about getting back in the car and going back, and <laughs> but that, uh, that didn't happen. So, you know, kind of coming back here and I, I had a lot of a lot of roles right I was a clerkship director an associate program director and I ran a you know the service at you know at UMC for psychiatry consultations and and then you there's a you reach a crossroads where you when opportunity presents itself you think well I, I didn't really think about this but can, can I do this job and what do I have to offer and you know, hopefully what you have to offer is a commitment to the mission and a desire to, you know, see all boats race. Mm-hmm. So if if you have the, the ability to help people see the best versions of themselves and to help them succeed and be able to maneuver the internal uh, kind of internal system and internal landscape at your whether it's your business or your institution. So 
people can achieve great things. Right? Mm-hmm. They can become great educators and great doctors and you know, do great research and you can help put the landscape together for them so they, they can maneuver that, then that's that's a picture, a picture of success. I I like working with people. I've I um, have always just had a, a pretty easy um, easy time and easy manner and um, and getting along with with folks. Um, I I don't like conflict and so I really try to work to prevent it, work around it, find you know systems for people to be able to communicate. Um, you know better. Uh, most conflict comes from misunderstanding um, or people feeling disrespected and mm-hmm. so being able to prevent that from you know from happening is um, is, is really important leadership is also a, a case of sometimes you don't know what you don't know so people can have great skills but it requires um, it requires investment from the person that wants to go down this track but also from the institution to help put resources in place through opportunity, but also through some, you know, mentorship activities to be able to do, to do that. This last year, um, I was um, in the ELAM program, which is the Educational Leadership for Academic Medicine program, which is a, a leadership program for women in academic medicine. Uh, that's run as a partnership through Drexel University, which many years ago um, was the first um, college that accepted women into medical school. And so they do a really intensive year-long program for women that are in um, medicine, dental medicine, uh, public health, and also in, um, in pharmacy schools now. And the experience is really impactful on many levels. One, through, um, through networking, it's fantastic because you meet people from all over the United States and they're all there for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Right? They're all there to be able to dis- figure out how can I be the most impactful and the best ver- leadership version of myself and where, where I am or take what I know now and be able to advance myself to another another role and be able to push the envelope of academic medicine the the, the program it it's it's year long you meet three weeks in person throughout the throughout the year you have a learning community of of people that are from all different kinds of backgrounds uh, different specialties um, uh, hopefully you're close to the same time zone uh, because that can make meeting every week a, yeah. little, a little difficult and you you go over uh, different ways of analyzing your organization your own leadership styles understanding other people's uh, kind of leadership and communication styles organizational structure um, more of the business part of medicine economics mm-hmm. You know, financial indicator indicators, uh, strategic um, partnership um, methodologies, and kind of all things, um, all things in the middle of that. Uh, there's there's a lot that goes into running an academic health system, and you know, being a um, you know being in the role of of 
um, kind of being the steward of any part of the, you know, the mission, whether it's research, you know, clinical, academic, you know, community engagement. So having that experience is, uh, in, during the year, is a little bit like drinking out of a fire mm-hmm. hose, mm-hmm. but then you take it with you. And as you keep going, you, you know, realize, oh, now I, I see, now I can, I, I can use pieces of this, or I'm seeing this problem from a different viewpoint. But also you have the opportunity to really um, stay in close contact with your learning community and other, um, they call them ELAMs, you know, alumni of ELAM. So you, you have a, a great network of, of, of people that you can lean on to get ad- advice, ideas, uh, and having an equal playing field for women in academic medicine is, is very important. Right now, the, there's a smidge more women going into medical school than men mm-hmm. when you look at the, you know, the peer numbers. But if you look at the numbers when it comes to, you know, deans, um, vice deans, you know, you're looking at, depending upon what institution, you're looking at anywhere between 10 and, and 20 percent nationwide. They haven't achieved over 20 percent. Um, as at the dean's level, so that's really important that we, we need to have leadership representation that looks like our who we're representing. And do you think that? Well, I'm not going to suggest. Why do you think that is that that women are underrepresented in some of the leadership roles in academic medicine? I think there's a I think there's a lot of a lot of reasons that. Um, that come from other um, responsibilities that women have throughout their life with uh, being a lot of times being the primary caregiver. Uh, you know, sometimes like I'm very fortunate where, you know, I, I we're 50, 50 in my family. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's really, really fantastic. And there's been a lot of years where it's been, uh, uh, you know, probably 70, 30 and I was not on the 70 side. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I feel very, you know, very yeah. fortunate that I've, you know, been able to take extra time to um, to follow some of these leadership opportunities, but but not all women have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And if you if you leave if you leave the field for a while, if you take some time off, or if you go part time for a while, being able to reengage, uh, you know, sometimes is is difficult. And people wonder, like, well, is that is that is that the right person or maybe this person all, all the unconscious biases right. come come out and sometimes people are are overlooked uh not appreciating that some of the experiences you know that you have when you're away will make you a better leader it's interesting i i i've i don't so the the discussion of you know you you've been away and then can we count on that person being here? Mm-hmm. You know, you hear that one often, but rarely do you hear the conversation about, you know, what were the things that you learned while you were away mm-hmm. that could help with the current situation? And so, you, you know, as a department chair for uh, several years, and now you're in a new role, again, an additional role because you're still the department chair. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about your new role and then how the ELAM uh, experience has helped you with that? Um, 
you know, so the new role right right now is the interim vice dean of clinical affairs and, you know, chairing the board of UNLV Health, which is our faculty practice. So it's kind of doing some of the things that you do as a department chair, but as a at a macro level. Mm-hmm. And and but but a lot of it is very much the same. Do you have the right people in the right positions? Um, do you do pe- do people have a a, career, a clear directive as to what they should be doing and how that loops back and benefits us as a whole? Because everybody is part of part of this mission. Whether you're the person who is responsible for being that first point of contact, answering the phone to somebody who's maybe really scared to call the doctor because they don't know what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. Or you're the person taking the, the blood pressure or the person that is responsible for making sure the bills go out and that we're, we're getting, you know, we're getting money or, uh, you know, the individual that makes sure we have a, a good sign and that, uh, you know, we have good chairs in our waiting room to our, you know, to our physicians and everyone in between without any of those roles that, you know, the ship sinks. Yeah. Do you know, you've probably heard the story of the, uh, the Kennedy, John F. Kennedy at, um, I think it was at Cape Canaveral and he was going through on a tour and he stopped back to talk to the custodian. So they're going through the tour and, uh, he sees this gentleman who's, uh, who's mopping the floors and, and he's just doing it with such passion. Like you could tell that he's really paying attention to what he's doing. So Kennedy dropped back and he said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? He said, yes, of course, Mr. President. He says, what do you do here? And the custodian said, I help send men to the moon. And, and, you know, of course, Kennedy understood exactly what he's saying. If, if, he doesn't take out the trash if he does you know if the facility isn't the way that it should be mm-hmm. it becomes a problem and so forth and so on so everybody you know having that north star and understanding what that north star is is so very important as well it's interesting i think you know as a department chair i think you did a you still do a phenomenal job your your team all seem to know where the north star is mm-hmm. you know and i think that that's that's coming about as well through the practice plan and the the organizations that you're in charge of. How do you do that? Like, how do you specifically make sure that people understand they're sending a man to the moon, right? This is their North Star. Well, I mean, one is communication, right? Um, so at the, so I guess I'll talk about the department level. I feel like our, at the part with the UNLV health, we've, We've done some. We've taken on some big challenges in these last eight months, and we're doing some some big things to try to actualize our our potential. But I still have a, I still have a lot of things on my list, you know, that I feel like I could do better, and you know where I think I could really help make the possibilities better and easier for for other folks mm-hmm. at the. At the department level, it's you're really being able to appreciate people as a as an individual. Um, I know, I know people's personal situations. I know, you know, when somebody's going to need time off, what parts of the year they 
um, you know, they need a little more flexibility in their in their schedule, what they're passionate about. I also know what their weaknesses are so that I can help them stay on top of those things, whether it's completing medical records, doing student evaluations, uh, uh, you know, feeling anxious, you know, putting educational material together for a new for a new class, being able to give difficult feedback to employees, um, all, all of those, all, there's a lot of th- things about work that are not on the top 10 list mm-hmm. of the things any of us would like to do, but if you ignore them, they become big. So being able to make people accountable and give them the tools and the support uh, so that they uh, feel feel comfortable doing that is, you know, is, is really important. It's It sounds like a lot of the the things that you just mentioned, it sounds like a lot of those are things that you know, that you have in your, who you are as a person. And then on top of that, some of the work that you did with the ELAM group mm-hmm. is adds tools to that toolbox, right? Uh, but but if you don't have both of those, it's just not going to be a, a great system, right? Because right. you could have the tools, but, but not the humanity mm-hmm. of it. Um, which is cool. So it's one of the reasons why I think you're a perfect person to go through the ELAM. And then, then you get to, you know, the ripple effect of that becomes huge as well. So um, we're out of time, unfortunately, but uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, any last words of advice that you have for us? Um, well, I think we, we're in a great position to make a tremendous impact on our state. And our road has not been easy. And the road of medicine, I I would say, is probably not going to be any easier moving forward, but um, it's it's worth it. And uh, if we're all in it to win it, then I think we're going to be able to see great change moving forward. 